there has been an update on LaughGate. Uh, a whistleblower has sent me a clip from the editing floor at the Adam Smith Institute of me making a hilarious joke and then Daniel's laughter being deleted along the way. So I think there is something to this and, and we'll be doing further investigations on this matter and, and bring it back to you every episode from now onwards. To be fair to um, our hundreds of employees on the ASI editing floor, <laughs> I think that the, 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 yeah, the reason they edited out my laughter was not in fact uh, as a subtle dig or un- subtly undermining you. I think it was because I laugh in very inopportune moments and in fact laugh over other people talking. There's nothing subtle about it, Daniel. It's, it's a conspiracy against me. The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and John Myers, the co-founder of the YIMBY Alliance and London YIMBY. This week, we'll be talking about the NIMBY fight back against new homes, vaccination privileges, and life after school. The shock Liberal Democrat victory in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election recently has led to calls for the Conservatives to dump their plans, which have been discussed uh, at length in the national media and in Parliament, but I think there's a lot more to come on that front, uh, to reform the planning system. So I guess to start things off and and focusing on the by-election specifically for the moment, what exactly caused them to lose this by-election and what's the significance of the loss, John? Well, look, I think it's a significant result and it's a message to listen to and I'm sure they will listen. You can see them listening already, you know, I mean, and you can see sort of William Hague, for example, saying, is this Boris Johnson's poll tax? I don't think this is Boris Johnson's poll tax. One of the reasons this isn't Boris Johnson's poll tax is they've already shown that they're listening, that they're willing to um, adapt and improve the proposals and they're going to get to something that people are happy with I'm pretty confident of that. Uh, and Matthew obviously we we had the development concerns being a significant part of this and pretty much every commentator that's talked about the, the by-election has focused on that but there was also the the HS2 issue wasn't there it wasn't just the planning woes of the government. Mm. And I said as the by-election was happening HS2 construction was getting started so despite the fact that Lib Dems back building more homes nationally, and they've actually supported HS2, they were able to kind of play a bit of a hat trick locally uh, and say, well, they're going to oppose those things in Parliament. But I think it's it's possible that we can learn too much from this by-election. It was a huge win against the Tories, and, and it does potentially single something broader about political realignment, which was a thing we've talked about quite a lot in this podcast. I don't think housing alone can explain it. As the Tories are winning these seats in the North, there, there is going to be some inevitable loss amongst university graduates. And Although the Tories could hold on to those highly educated traditional Tory voters uh, in wealthier parts of the country last election because you had the boogeyman, which was Jeremy Corbyn, it's going to be a lot harder in future. And particularly at a by-election where the turnout is much lower, where the Lib Dems have a lot of capacity to put in activists into the area, as well as build on to some of those local issues. You're going to have this these kind of shocked results all over the place, just like, in a sense... Um, you, you're seeing what is, in historical terms, shock results up north in Hartlepool. So I think planning is, is probably part of the story, but we should be careful not to think that it's the only part of the story, or thinking that, on the one hand, 
just dumping planning reforms will mean that the Tories won't have a risk in these seats. I think they still have these risks in these seats if they try to dump planning reform. And in fact, uh, I think we're going to get onto this. In the longer term, they probably have even more risk in these kind of seats if they dump planning reform because a lot of younger people have been locked out of the housing market and are going to rightfully, I think, feel quite a lot of frustration with the government's inability to build enough homes and inability to ensure that housing is affordable. So it's it's a bit of a, a complex, more complex situation than all the Tories need to do is is dump what is probably their most important economic reform. Um, I, I think we need to have a, a bit much better discussion about how we build support for those kind of reforms in the future. Yeah, I'd say that you, you're completely right about the idea. It's it's not just planning reform here, and we can definitely learn too much. We had uh, David Davis, the Conservative MP, on our webinar earlier this week, and he made the point that a lot of this swing to the Lib Dems is potentially the result of a realignment when it comes to social issues as well, and the Tories, for example, doing things like cutting the international aid budget and losing those Tory-sympathetic small-L liberals on, on the, the culture wars issues more broadly and, and things like this. So it, it's true that we can learn too much. But I remember looking at my my timeline, my Twitter timeline, which is full of Lib Dems, of course, as the, the ASI's resident Lib Dem liaison officer. And most of them, of course, were understandably celebrating. They they won by-election. Happy days for them. But there was actually a significant proportion in the party itself from the more free market, uh, social liberal side of things, who were pretty unhappy with their party's campaigning strategy, which was, in their words, kowtowing to, to NIMBYs in the constituency. And that's something that they didn't really want. And I guess for, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with, with NIMBYs and NIMBYs and, and these wonderful acronyms, John, if you could perhaps explain what the, the background for those is. Sure. So NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard, and it's a term that actually goes back decades. It was uh, popularised by Nicholas Ridley, I think, in the 1980s. And it's just people who are opposed to development near there. And it actually started out with sort of chemical plants and, and waste dumps, and, and uh, it's sort of been steadily more applied to people objecting to their neighbour's tree. Um, you saw the tree that had been cut in half up in Sheffield that was going around um, social media where, where someone literally cut down the half of a tree. Isn't the classic case of this in Tower Hamlets where they wanted to try to build a housing development where a petrol station currently is and the locals said we'll have to drive five minutes longer to get to a petrol station and therefore we can't have any more houses. It was a petrol station. I mean, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like a, <laughs> a, a prime location for protection to me it might have been a historic petrol station though matthew (laughs) i'm sure it was very historic or hysteric maybe and then so in reaction to this kind of negativity and it was just blocking um it was blocking progress it was blocking more homes as you know we have an incredible housing shortage um especially in the parts of the country where you can find the best job opportunities right now and um that's been getting worse since the 1950s quite frankly And, and so in reaction to that and to try to give a positive message that we actually do need to build infrastructure, we do need to build housing, the YIMBY movement has sprung up and YIMBY stands not very inventively for yes in my backyard because we couldn't think of a better acronym. And so, but that's a campaign that kicked off in Scandinavia and in the States. It's had some incredible successes in both of those countries, in Helsinki, in California, Seattle, uh, across the United States, in fact. And so we started about here about four years ago to, to provide a voice in this country to say, look, we need to build housing and uh, because we realized there weren't enough people saying it and you just see a huge wave of people from 18 up kind of worried about their housing options not happy about what they they're currently living with and knowing that the world could be so much better and it doesn't need to cost government anything you just need to allow people to build homes where people want to live john i've always wondered do you think britain is a particularly nimby place 
and there does feel like there's a particularly high importance in this country placed on heritage, um, historical buildings, the the look of local areas. There seems to be a sense in which any development um, needs to be opposed, at least by by some particularly strong NIMBYs. Do you think your task is a bit harder in the UK than elsewhere, or is it just kind of a similar challenge everywhere? No, I think you're right. I think it does vary very much by um, a range of things. You know, it varies by the, the percentage of homeowners because homeowners know they're going to be able to stick around they, and they're much more worried about how their local area is going to change. Um, we had the industrial revolution basically before anyone else. And so we have a huge stock of very historic housing because we urbanized before any other country. We're quite densely populated as an island, which doesn't make things easier. I'm not sure it's going to make that much difference, to be honest, when you see what Hong Kong or Tokyo achieve. But there are a whole range of reasons why we probably have a tougher problem. I don't think it's because of anything kind of cultural about the British that works culturally NIMBY. And I do think all of these problems are soluble because there's so many quote unquote historic petrol stations that actually we could replace with something vastly better um, that pretty much everyone will be happy with. And, and, you know, we're going to be switching to electric cars anyway, so who's going to need petrol stations. So there, there are ways forward on all of this. It's all soluble. But I do think it's a particularly tricky problem here compared to the vast majority of other countries. I don't think I've asked you this before when we've we've chatted, John, but do you think that NIMBY is a still a useful term for people who are on the pro-development side of these sort of debates to use because we often kind of emphasize and I think rightly so and we'll get onto this the details of this a bit later but the need for more consensus when it comes to planning reform and win-win proposals so that they actually get through politically and it seems like even the term NIMBY itself if kind of advocates from our side of the debate, broadly speaking, are using that, do you think that that alienates people or actually is there a kind of just a smaller core group of, of NIMBYs that aren't going to be happy with anything and that we, we should continue to to use that? So I, I actually never use it. I have a kind of, yeah. we, we have a no NIMBY left behind policy that, you know, we believe that <laughs> nearly everyone can be got to solutions which is basically win-win for them and everyone else and there's a there's a very small hardcore of people who just absolutely want no change ever and i'm perfectly happy to just ignore them frankly and and and, and democracy will overrule them in the end but you're absolutely right look the, the basic challenge facing development and reform in this country is that two-thirds of the voters are homeowners and they really don't like disruption congestion noise dust pollution, all of the other things that come with building something and um, and they vote, you know, and so we've got to find ways that can bring at least a big chunk of those people along and there are plenty of ways to do it. So, so there's no reason to despair, there's no reason to kind of descend into copium and say all oh, these people are just all evil people and we actually need genetic engineering to fix their, fix their mindset. We don't need to do that. There are plenty of ways forward if we just look for win-win solutions because you know the losses to society are so huge from this unnecessary cartel kind of restriction that we've inflicted that if we just remove that in a good way, we can build lots of high quality housing and we can make everybody better off. Well, let's get into some of the specifics of the details when it comes to the government's planning reforms and maybe some of the bits that are proving more controversial than others. What are the the key planks of what the government's trying to change here? Sure. Okay. So there are basically four things. First of all, they want to make planning digital. So you can click on the map of a place and you can know exactly what's going to be permitted. 
Um, and that's pretty uncontroversial. It makes total sense. Obviously, we should be doing that. In fact, to be honest, you can sort of do that in many countries already. If you go to France and you look at the, the local code, you can pretty much find out what is very clearly enabled. I mean, that's essentially called zoning. The Prussians invented it in you know the, the 1800s. So, so, so dragging our planning system, kicking and screaming into the 20th century probably isn't that bad an idea. And it's not controversial. Another thing they want to do is, is sort of reform the levy where people who build huge new buildings have to pay for infrastructure, new roads or whatever else, new doctors surgeries that are going to be required because of the people coming there and again that's not hugely controversial the actual implementation is going to be more tricky but i'm pretty sure i'll get to something reasonable on that and then they also want to encourage more design codes which are the rules which set out how buildings should look so if people want them to fit in more with the local area then they can they can demand that if they want some shiny glass buildings they can also demand that I've got my own private views on which which one they'll generally choose, but we'll we'll see. And um, and then the fourth one, and this is this is the one that's a bit more controversial, is changing the process. So we do switch to a more continental style system where everything, or, or a US style system where it all gets decided upfront what's allowed, and um, it's just set out clearly in the rules. And if you want to build something, you look at the rules and then you build it. And nobody gets to object. There's no kind of intermediate stage where you say this is what I want to build. Is that still okay? Even though you set the rules. And that's more controversial because I think there's fundamentally quite a lot of doubt um, in people's minds as to whether they'll be happy with the rules that get set. And I think the government's probably going to do more work on addressing that aspect. And, you know, so long as everyone's happy up front with the rules, then there really isn't any problem with having that sort of system because, you know, certainty is good. It reduces costs. It makes it easier to get more homes built. It makes those homes more, afford- more affordable and cheaper. So they'll get there, I think. Yeah, the, the other element as well, John, uh, that's quite substantial, of course, is that the targets the government's setting using this algorithm where the, the basic idea of it, which is quite economically sensible, of course, is that we should build more homes where homes are the most expensive because that you know, supply and demand indicates that the, there's a shortage. Uh, that's probably proven, though, the most controversial. There were some, I think, quite questionable original calculations that suggested a lot more houses being built in certain areas that in, in London and Southeast then would actually in reality be the case. But of course, there is a big bias towards London and the Southeast in the algorithm and in the targets that would be put onto local councils and the local councils would be enforcement mechanisms to make sure they have to zone enough land in order to build enough homes. And that seems, John, like what's gotten the most of the backlash in addition to the point about not having an ability to object to each individual development and having only kind of a zone-based system, which is universally quite common, but seems to be quite a foreign idea in the UK. So yeah, my, is that, would you say that's right, John? It's, it's targets and, and the taking away uh, the ability to object to each individual development. Yeah, I, you're obviously right. There was a huge backlash to the proposed new targets, but I, I mean, I think those have been adjusted now. So uh, as you say, the, the biggest bump jump in the targets is going to be in London mainly. And that's that jump isn't going to kick in for five years because the new London plan has just been adopted. So most of the target stuff isn't the most kind of disputed discussion right now there was actually a change in the targets two years ago which means the targets bite the targets as they were bite much harder than they did that is still quite controversial but that was that sort of happened two years ago and it's gradually working its way through the system so i think we're really mainly down to this kind of zoning question and how you set those rules and will people be happy with them and do you think that this kind of front loading of the local input into the decision making process the idea of more of a focus on local plans and less on objections to individual developments do you see that as some kind of opponents of the the planning reforms more broadly see it as a erosion of 
the right of local people to object to development or do you see it actually as more akin to the kind of win-win approach where there is actually still significant input here in, in the process and it helps with getting more houses built? I mean, I think it depends how you do it. I, I think if you set rules up front, um, there's nothing to stop you having win-win solutions embedded in those rules. And, you know, the, I think people's real underlying concern is that they won't be win-win solutions. And it's going to be quite tough, to be honest, to have plans written in a much shorter time, as the government's also aiming to do, and make sure that the vast majority of people are happy with that plan, and then have no opportunity to tweak it afterwards. Because, you know, if you, let's say you're allocating a big site for hundreds of new homes in a plan, you probably want kind of some detail on the design of those. That's all got to be agreed up front in, a, in, in what's going to be a quite tight timetable. And I think that's where it sort of comes down to the concern. So, if you, I mean, we'll go on to it later, hopefully, you know, the sorts of proposals we're pushing actually would deliver certainty up front, like the street boats idea. But it's a certainty that people know they're comfortable with and, and that people are vastly more relaxed with that kind of zoning. Well, let, let's move on to that now, the, the kind of proposals that uh, that you guys are, are really pushing for and that we've written about the ASI and many other think tanks as well have, have looked at this. And probably the key one here is street votes. So if you could take us through what that actually entails, that would be fantastic. Sure, absolutely. So the basic idea is that you're mainly affected by the other things that happen on your street. You, you know, somebody decides to, to build a building three streets over. If you can't actually see it from your house, you're not really going to be that bothered generally, unless there's a massive jump in congestion or you suddenly can't get a doctor's appointment or something. So we thought, why not just let people who live on a single street decide if they want to allow more building on their street, whether it's just extensions or building granny flats, or perhaps they want to have a backyard cottage in one variant. And that turns out to be pretty popular, um, taking back control, if you like. Uh, people like to have the idea that they can they can decide, it's not the planners, um, what gets allowed. And obviously, in, in the highest cost areas of the country, the places where it's most unaffordable, Oxford, for example, Cambridge, then it's difficult to afford a home of the size you need. So if you're if you a family, you want kids or you've got kids and you haven't got enough bedrooms, you've got a massive problem. But if you can add more bedrooms or if you could take a 1950s bungalow and just knock it down and replace it with two terraced houses or a blocks of flat, mansion block of flats with lots of homes, you can generate lots more room for your family or you can generate so much money that you can go and buy a house and you can then buy a house for your grown up kids as well. So the, there are vast profits to be made out of turning suburbs that we probably would have redeveloped a long time ago if it hadn't been for the planning system into more ambitious sets of buildings that people will like just as much, if not more, that will also support local high streets. I'm just going to add that the kind of brilliance of street votes is that it really kind of changes the political economy of the planning system. Right now, it's quite oppositional. If I want to put an extension or build a, a, an extra level on my property, no one else in the street gets any benefit and they potentially get some loss of amenity uh, because there's more people on the street or because there's a shadow, whatever else it may be. But what Street Votes does is it flips that and says, why don't we give everyone this, the same permission, let's say, to build an extra story on the home and then everyone benefits at the same time, be it because you opt to, to build that extra story or because of the capital value of your property will have gone up. So it really changes the the dynamic from from NIMBY to YIMBY in the, in the truest sense of it because it, it makes it valuable to you to, to build that that extra story or use that bit of space that everyone has at the back of their property. And I think you explained this quite well in, in the paper you did for us 
um, last October called Home Improvement that was a submission to the government's planning white paper. And it's a really good read because you, you go into the politics of it and thinking through, well, the, the previous efforts of reform have failed because it's it, they're oppositional. So if you can flip the political economy on its head and make it win-win, it really does provide a lot of opportunity to build more homes um, and, and do that not as a top-down, here's your target, but as a bottom-up, the street organizing itself. Yeah, one of the reasons I'm a fan of this is that it avoids what my backup idea is, which is simply to pay people lots of money whenever they object to development and say, don't worry, we're going to bribe you to accept development because A, that costs public money uh, and that's not ideal. And B, it's obviously much more of a bureaucratic and difficult to administer process. But what Street Votes is effectively doing is paying people when they support development. It's giving a a strong economic incentive to do that. And, you know, for me, that, that it's an absolutely perfect solution in the why on earth did you object to a proposal where you end up extremely rich and your grandparent, your, your grandkids and your kids end up with places to live or you get a, a second income from renting out a, a place above your head, for example? It, it seems absolutely perfect to me. And this isn't just a, a kind of pie in the sky idea, right? It's been tried in, in various places, John. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the conversation point you make is exactly um, Steve Baker MP's idea. And it gets to the crux of the question. You know, it's getting to win-win solutions. And as you say, street votes are just basically an implementation of that idea. So we've seen something in Tel Aviv recently where Israel allows uh, the owners of flats and the block of flats to vote to redevelop their building if 80% of them agree. And that raised effectively the uh, the number of homes produced in Tel Aviv by 50%. So um, the numbers that accounted for 35% of the new homes in Tel Aviv last year. Now, imagine if we could just boost London housing production by 35% overnight, just by people letting to do things they want to do. I mean, it's it, it's almost impossible to find low-hanging fruit like that out there. We, we should definitely be trying this. Now, obviously, the Tel Aviv Israel solution isn't exactly the same as what we're proposing. We're proposing if two thirds of the people on the street agree, and these are probably going to be detached or semi-detached houses, which actually means they don't all have to move out at once, unlike when you're knocking down an apartment block. So that gives a decent amount of confidence there's going to be healthy interest, not to mention the fact that we get you know, inquiries all the time about people who'd like to do this. And until we try it, we're not going to know, but I'm very happy to bet it's there's going to be healthy interest in doing it. I think to to bring this section to a close, we are, as the ASI, uh, economic educators, as well as our, our role in policy formation too. And there's a few pretty well-known and well-worn myths about the causes of the housing crisis. I think it would be useful to address. Um, the, the ones that tend to come up for me are that there's three of them for me. It's land banking is actually the real issue. Uh, low interest rates, are the real issue. And actually, it's because far too many people are immigrating to Britain, and that's driving up house prices. That's the real issue. So I was hoping we could tackle each of those in turn quickly and maybe start off with land banking, John. Sure. So I mean, I think of land banking mainly like buffering. Um, you know, if your phone doesn't have a sufficient bandwidth it might decide to buffer some video before it streams it for you and to a certain extent land banking is like that the 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 developers don't know when they're going to be able to get planning permissions so they need a buffer so they can carry on working and there are other aspects of that you know if you if you know that planning permissions are going to probably carry on keeping getting more valuable as they have in this country over the last 70 years then you have an incentive to hang on to it and in 
all other things being equal, you're going to hold on to more of those planning permissions than you would do if you were if you were sure that they would be completely abundant next week and you didn't need any of them. So it's the scarcity in the system which drives that buffering process. There are specific nuances of the way we do planning that over the last 20 years, we, we tend to allocate very large sites to um, which are only really useful for big developers. And that means inevitably there tends to be a buffer held with those and the ways we could tweak that. But the, the main point is that if you've got a system where planning permissions are incredibly and unnecessarily scarce and getting scarcer, people are going to want to hang on to them. The, the, the myth here, of course, is that there's a million permissions that are unused. Now, there, there might have been a million permissions granted over the years, but many of those aren't necessarily still valid. But the point is often they're not necessarily in the areas with the most need, and that's probably why they haven't been used uh, and why developers haven't ensured that they, they put something onto there. Now, John did propose in, uh, in that uh, submission that we mentioned that you put a land value tax on future large sites um, to, just to make sure there's even stronger incentive if that's what your concern is that people aren't building. But it's probably not the main reason for the housing crisis. No, it's, it's certainly not the main reason of the housing crisis. The main reason of the housing crisis is that we don't build enough homes and that's because you're not allowed to build enough homes. I mean, there are, you could walk out in any costly city and make money by going and building more homes on almost any particular plot of land. And you're just not allowed to. And and if you sit in cities where you are allowed to do that, then there isn't a problem. Houston, Atlanta, for example, um, Tokyo, Seoul, I could, I could go on forever. Well, there are uh, there are those who say that, of, of course, that's not the main reason for the housing crisis and it is, in fact, low interest rates that are the key reason i think sometimes this can be overplayed a little bit when you end up disagreeing with it in trying to say that interest rates have absolutely no role whatsoever in determining house prices and housing affordability or am i actually being far too far too nice to those who talk about low interest rates is it really just a load of guff well um you know i really be sure you be nice to our opposition but you probably are being too nice to be honest but anyway the if you look if you go to houston you go to the plentifully supplied cities around the world you know, you're not suddenly struck by a massively different economic environment because the interest rates have changed at the border you know the reason that they don't have the housing problems that we have is because they build more homes and if you have a market where you're allowed to build plenty of homes um, and interest rates go down, people will probably build more because it's cheaper to finance the construction. And so the prices basically don't, basically don't move. And uh, Professor Ed Glazer has done studies on this. There's a great study that he showed how that changes in San Francisco and, and Houston, for example, Atlanta rather. So interest rates are kind of a red herring. If we had plentiful supply, then lower interest rates wouldn't do anything to prices. And in fact, they'd probably help rents because, as I said, if you can finance construction cheaply, then you're going to build more homes. And if you build more homes, you'll push rents down. So in a perfect world, lower interest rates would actually help renters. I think the complexity that Daniel's getting at is the fact that in the context of limited supply, relatively low interest rates will push up housing prices because yeah. fixed supply, increased money that you can borrow, particularly at a low interest rate. So therefore, the value of the house, does, there's just more available cash to bid for these relatively limited supply. Um, the, the response to that, though, is, well, <laughs> interest rates aren't set for housing affordability. There's other economic forces at play that are very hard to impact um, and very hard to fix. And even if you lowered the interest rates, it wouldn't really increase the... Well, sorry, if you increase the interest rates, it wouldn't make housing more affordable. It would just mean people were paying more week to week and maybe the, the value would be slightly less. So it's not going to fix the problem. What what would fix the problem is something, a lever we, we can pull far more easily, which is building enough homes to the point where low interest rates doesn't have any impact whatsoever anymore uh, and it, it becomes an irrelevant part of the story. So the most impressive part of that was, I, I, think, I think Matt was... Uh, 
was was doing graphs with his hands rather than doing esoteric dance moves. But I hope we get a clip of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the the final one here, the final kind of objection that comes up quite often, uh, and I saw uh, our good friend uh, Professor Paul Cheshire from the LSE on GB News recently faced this in his. Twitter mentions is the idea that actually population growth is the main issue here. Uh, and it makes a lot of intuitive sense when you kind of initially consider this. Well, you know, if demand goes up, then obviously the price is going to go up. And that's the kind of the basic Econ 101 understanding of how population growth affects housing demand. But it's, you know, I, I sound like such a nuanced troll here. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's completely. We don't have exact numbers for how much immigration affects welfare because immigrants contribute so much through growth, and they pay a lot of tax. Look, I mean, on on a, on a single dimension, obviously, if you restrict supply of homes, um, then more people, all other things being equal, mean higher rents. But we can easily fix that just by allowing more supply. Yeah, I think that's that's the key thing for me here. Is it's only a problem because of our housing and planning approach that we have right now and wouldn't be. I think the other thing to mention here before we move on, this will be my last comment here, is as Paul Cheshire mentioned on this GB news appearance, even when you can see that obviously population growth has some impact on house prices, the relative impact it has compared to rising incomes on demand is very, very marginal. It plays far less, it's a far lower magnitude of effect on overall housing demand. Even if you stopped external immigration that leads to population growth, you'd still have internal immigration to cities, which is what drives a lot of the cost pressures inside cities. So although you might have fewer, fewer foreigners like myself coming into the housing market and, and pushing up the cost, you certainly get people from all over the country just doing the same thing uh, because of the, the, the kind of economic power of cities. So unless you're going to put a border at the gate in London and, and shut it down to, to outsiders, you're not going to be able to truly reduce the population enough for it to no longer have a price impact on, on people in the context of not building enough homes. Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. Look, as growth continues, then we need to keep on building more housing because people who earn more, who are wealthier, demand more housing space. And so there's a standard result in spatial economics that if you if supply is inelastic, then basically all of the returns from growth go to landlords. And, that, and that's why we've got to fix the housing crisis. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a bit worried that uh, Lesh has accidentally given some frog uh, Twitter avatar people some great ideas for putting up borders around our, our cities there. But hopefully, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, but I think on, on that worrying note, it's probably time to move on to our next section of the podcast on proposed vaccine privileges. The government has mooted the idea that fully vaccinated people should no longer have to isolate if they come into contact with a COVID case or when travelling back into the country from an amber list location, as long as you take a lateral flow test every 24 hours. Daniel, would no longer requiring isolation be a freedom-enhancing measure that seems quite reasonable, a way to encourage more vaccinations? Or is there a big risk to public health here of just kind of giving up on the whole schematic of isolation for, a lot, for the vast majority of the population? I think that it's worth making a distinction here between the domestic and the international arrivals case. I think on the domestic level, it seems fairly sensible and it's got a lot of support from uh, the people that are advising the Department of Health, I think, for good reasons in significantly reducing transmissibility through vaccines and just generally there being far less of a risk to public health and obviously the, the welfare benefit that you get from not having to fully self-isolate and just taking a test 
every day. Where I'm a little more worried is when it comes to uh, international rivals. And this isn't some base kind of xenophobic uh, response here. It's because of the variant risks specifically. And looking at the kind of emergence of new variants and the potential increased risk that comes from introducing those into the country on a mass level. Now, again, you know, if you're double jabbed, then it's very likely to be the case that you are going to uh, reduce the transmissibility of it. The worry is that we get a variant that comes along that actually does have a significantly um, increase. It, there's some vaccine escape or in increased transmissibility compared to what we have at the moment. And the rules that would be in place, these proposals at least, don't make any sort of distinction there. And, and they apply exactly the same even to ambulance countries. And actually, we end up with uh, a significant number of people with a potentially harmful variant being able to get in without any sort of self-isolation um, and we do get a, a significant vaccine escape. Now, it's true that that's probably quite unlikely, uh, at least at the moment, in the sense that it would take a lot for this virus to mutate to a level where it, uh, it wasn't significantly affected by the, the vaccine, as, as current variants still are at the moment. But I think it's a, a risk that's worth bearing in mind and, and being more on the cautious side when it comes to the international thing. I'm kind of in in two minds to some extent, which is on the one hand, I kind of just want this all to be over. I think everyone really does. On the other hand, though, and even pushing back against your your suggestion that domestically having to isolate after you've been double jabbed isn't a good idea. The risk is if if that's if you let's say you, you no longer require vaccinated people to isolate after coming in contact with a positive case, it, it would create evolutionary pressure towards a variant of the vaccine that skips through vaccinated individuals. So because the, the the kind of variant that skips through vaccinated individuals is going to develop in somebody who is vaccinated, you you send them out into the community at large, they're going to spread that variable, uh, that variant so very quickly. Um, then again, that risk is never going to end. So is it is it worth limiting our freedoms effectively forever, John, because of the risk that some people might someday develop a variant or do we somehow need to learn how to live with this and have a longer term plan? Uh, when it comes to COVID? I mean, I think we have to recognise that we kind of at the moment have sort of vaccine security theatre at the border and that we are obviously letting a huge amount of COVID in. There are a whole long list of exemptions. If you compare us with the countries that actually take uh, border control seriously, sort of, you know, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, then we are, we're making a gesture in that direction. And so I think we, everything we do should be a cost-benefit analysis. And to me, that's the big problem here that we're not seeing numbers applied to it. And if we were seeing numbers applied to it, we would have had things like, actually telling people to open the windows, you know, a lot earlier than we did, which is far more effective than most of these measures and costs essentially nothing. We wouldn't have this endless kind of hand-washing theatre either, which is almost completely without benefit, as far as I can tell from the epidemiologist. So I, I think we just need to fix the whole thing, quite frankly. And there are, there are definitely ways to getting much better outcomes than we have had so far at vastly lower cost to everybody. And we need to really fix that system. Because as Di- I think Daniel, you know, as you both correctly say, the big risk is vaccine escape. If that were to happen, and we've already seen some partial vaccine escape with Delta, because um, a single dose is now only about 30, 30% effective against Delta, as I understand it. And as you say, there's going to be a lot of uh, selection pressure for variants that are resistant against the vaccine. But we need to we need to sort of 
get ready for future pandemics as well. We, we, we need to have a system in place that deals with actually just not only pandemics, but a whole load of other um, catastrophic risks, as, as Mr. Cummings has been saying on, on his uh, Twitter feed. And so <laughs> to me, we need to, we need to stop micro debating these questions and we need to actually say, well, how do we actually get an institution in place that works? How do we get a, a risk officer, a chief risk officer, and have some incentives so that we actually have systems that, that you can't take seriously? You know? I'm sure at this point, Matt Hancock would probably describe Dominic Cummings as a catastrophic risk uh, in and of itself. I was, I was having a look earlier today about some reporting out of Singapore, that a country that's been extremely successful at controlling COVID, uh, a global trading nation, lots of flights in and out of there. They managed to really very early identify people who needed to isolate. Uh, they've had some like 35 deaths in total, not, not 35,000, 35, 35 deaths. So they've, they've done extremely well, but they're now thinking, what are their next steps? They've done probably better than any other country that's been successful stopping COVID in terms of vaccination rate. They're, they're relatively highly well vaccinated. They're going very well on that front. And they want to try to develop a point and they're trying to have this conversation with the Singaporean people that our future is an, an open trading nation in which people can travel in and out of. We need to move from focusing on cases to focusing a bit more on hospitalizations and deaths as our metric. So we're not going to get excited when there's new cases. That's kind of irrelevant. COVID's going to be with us forever. What we need to focus on is that is the healthcare outcomes. So yeah, you might do tests in order to do some certain events and you might still have to, if you're double vaccinated, you'll have to do a test on the way into the country, but you won't have to isolate for 10 days. So they're thinking about ways in which you really start to turn down the volume and focus on where the danger point is, as well as like we do with the flu, update the vaccines and get rid of restrictions. Do we need to start having that kind of conversation in the UK, Daniel, or are we not quite there yet and the risks from the rest of the world are, are too high? I think that in a lot of ways, the Singapore example is a very good parallel, right? As you mentioned, global free trading nation, lots of international links that are pretty necessary to the successful operation of its economy. But because we've taken such a different approach to many countries in Southeast Asia and in other things, and John's mentioned some of them with a, a lot of our hand-washing theatre, but I think more seriously as well, well that, that is a serious point, but, but also the question of, of border controls that just completely screwed up by the government uh various i mean that the list of screw-ups is, is endless and we've discussed it many times on this podcast but we are in a different situation i think from them we haven't managed to control the virus as well um and we still aren't controlling the virus anywhere near as well though we're, we're making a lot of progress on the vaccination front so that is beginning to become more of a, a moot point thankfully and i enjoyed your use of the word moot in the introduction to this section just a little aside there that was a great word and <laughs> strongly support you using that again um, but I, I think no I, I think that we are different enough from from singapore that we shouldn't be having the same sort of conversations that they are now um, and i think that there are some significant differences in how we've reacted to the virus that make that the case John, what do you see in terms of the, the kind of next step? We were talking a little bit uh, earlier before we, we started the podcast about the, the kind of moral issues with vaccinating younger people, particularly since there does seem to be some quite serious side effects and a tighter number of people for the Pfizer vaccine. Although if we can't vaccinate younger people, we might not be able to get the kind of herd immunity we need, um, even if that does mean some micro danger to those individuals. You've been thinking about that in terms of vaccines, but what else do you see is in in that and, and what else you say is coming next yeah well i mean just let me say before i get to that that in fact we're way ahead of singapore on vaccinations by the way in terms of percentage of the population either single or double dose we're about 50 12 to 15 percent ahead of them so i think you know that 
partly their sort mm. of sense of uh, security is mainly because they don't have a lot of delta yet um, and, and things might change them quite rapidly when, when that becomes more prevalent. Look, I, vaccination is, 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 is the technological way forward on all of this. Um, and I think we need to kind of back away from kind of voodoo, pseudoscientific ethicism and these sort of ethical practitioners who say that they're experts and and actually you become an ethics professor mainly by saying controversial things that other ethics professors want to fight about and get back to the real world of is anybody seriously saying that we shouldn't let kids have a vaccine if they and their parents want them to because you know uh, i think we're just getting far beyond the realm of 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 seriousness at this point i mean if you go back to any almost any generation in history for example there was some detail about myocarditis in in teenage boys well for a start we were giving them the same dose that adults were giving which is we were getting you know there's absolutely no sense in giving the same dose to an eight-year-old as to a 15-year-old because a 15-year-old has a turbocharged immune system and probably a 10 percent of that dose would would you know be just perfectly adequate so let's try let's try reducing the dosage first of all but secondly in any previous generation you know those those teenagers would have been climbing trees racing around jumping off cliffs into rivers and taking vastly more risk <laughs> than any of these vaccines. And, so, and we're seriously saying, no, the state won't let you have this vaccine because it's too risky. I just think we need to take a step back and have a yeah. sense of perspective on all of it. I think that's absolutely right. I actually was, was very lucky uh, walking back from lunch yesterday. I noticed somebody trying to hand me a, a, a piece of paper and I thought it was advertising nonsense and I walked past and I kind of spotted and turned back and it said COVID vaccine. So they were doing um, walk-in vaccinations. I was able to get my, my second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I opted into. And um, they were also, so, there was someone who walked in with me, some probably younger than myself in their, their early 20s, who wanted to try to get the AstraZeneca dose. He was he was fine with it. He understood the risks. And he, he, he waited for his turn and then he went up. And the guy at the desk said, no, I'm sorry, you've got to get your Pfizer dose. We're not going to give you an AstraZeneca today. Now, I think it's, it's pretty disgraceful that that person who was actively willing to opt into the AstraZeneca vaccine in the knowledge of the risks. And I think you can give someone a piece of paper, you can you can talk them through it and, and receive uh, kind of informed consent for it. Still can't really do it in, in a lot of cases. Uh, I think that's something in the in the immediate instance that we can fix and would actually also fix a lot of the vaccine supply issues and just getting those, using up all those AstraZeneca jabs that, that we have as, as quickly as possible. Well, talking about life after COVID, time to think a little bit more existential about life after school. The government's levelling up agenda follows previous attempts to boost opportunity across the country. A common thesis is that Britain has been over-prioritising university education and neglected other life options. Uh, just to start off with the, the fundamental question here, John, are too many people going to university? Well, look, I think certainly too many people are doing bad courses. There's a lot of people wasting a lot of money on courses which aren't doing them any use, any good at all, and which aren't going to help them in their careers, and they're frankly a waste of three years of their life, and they'd be better off having a job. Yeah, I, I have a, a similar sort of view, and the, the kind of classic objection to this is, well, you know, it's not just it's not just about employment prospects, and that's true, but it's a very different case when you're subsidising higher education in this sort of sphere, right? Like, obviously, the system that we've we've got at the moment, the the student does take on a significant amount of the cost of the degree um, but at the same time a lot of university and student loans aren't paid back and there's a significant amount of grants in the system as well when it comes to funding higher education so it's all very well to, to kind of talk about of course you know education for education's sake and people go to university because they enjoy the experience and, and things like this but 
the kind of unwritten truth or the, the unspoken truth there is that sure but you're getting a massive taxpayer subsidy to do that in in many cases and we should be focusing a little bit more on the the kind of employment side prospects of this mm. i think the classic story here of course is is tony blair's 50 percent target in terms of, of getting school leavers to university which i think has basically been achieved or if not pretty close to being achieved and that's kind of created a situation that as a community as a society we have very much put a lot of value into going to university and there is a bit of a wage premium although not as much as there used to be because we've got so many people who are getting higher educated but it's only a cultural prestige issue to some extent the fact that we feel like we have to send young people to a university and of course it's kind of hypocritical for us to talk about this of course because I think we're all university graduates with professional jobs but it isn't necessarily the right path for everyone now is it well you might have a professional job i'm not sure what mine is to be honest but um, (laughs) the i think the real question is why on earth is the state making these choices for people why is the state pushing people into one particular pathway that the state thinks is is more valuable may or may not be more valuable i'm not so sure anybody's ever really made that assessment to be honest and why we why aren't we giving people a, a more free choice as to what they want to do well that's us told isn't it daniel i think we're we're the ones who've gone soft here yep we're, we're a very useful corrective there from from John. I think you're completely right. And the the, the other issue here is that when it comes to univer- the way that we currently fund uh, university degrees, it's a lot better than it could be in the sense of, well, the students do take on, in most cases, a significant amount of the personal cost of their education. So there is a, an incentive structure that works that's in place it doesn't work perfectly but at least it's there and it's not just you know completely free education for example and therefore funded by people who don't go to university and actually end up being quite regressive but the concern that i have is that it's funded at the state rather than the university level and this kind of screws up the incentive structure quite a bit so for me the real improvement here would be having individual students who want to study a particular course at university make a contract of whatever sort with that university itself as opposed to through the the student loan company or or a a similar centralized national body and that way you could you can have a variety of different approaches to this you know you can have the kind of universities taking out an equity stake in their students or you can have the university um, agree to to pay as a a guarantee that they'll end up getting a proportion of the student's income for X amount of years. And there can be competition between those different contracts, right? Like, you know, I might want to go to university that says, oh, we'll take 10% of your salary for the next 20 years, um, but we'll pay for your education. Some people might want to go to university where they pay a significant amount upfront, but then the university takes a lower or no equity stake in their future income. I think, like you said, John, you know, it's, it's about increasing and expanding choice here. That's the key important thing that we've got. And actually, the current system that we have does an okay job of that. It, In some ways, it's quite similar to the kind of graduate tax proposals that free marketers talk about. There isn't that much difference between our current system and a graduate tax system. But there's still a lot of room for improvement in changing the relationship that students have between Uh, themselves and their universities and making it more between themselves and their universities as opposed to between them and the state. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Daniel. And, you know, getting to flexibility and the times of income income sharing equity arrangements you talk about would be a massive step forward. I, I think it might be difficult to get there in a single step, to be honest. And so 
one of the things that really appealed to me was Sam Bowman's idea for youth loans, which would strip out the regressive element that you're talking about and just say, look, everybody at 18 gets a, f- a certain amount of loan from the state. And if they want to, they can put it into a university education. If they want to, they can have they can use to pay for an apprenticeship or they can start a business with it or they can even put a deposit down for a house if they're flat, if they want to do that. So, and that would take kind of value judgments by the state out of this and let the real underlying economic incentives operate. And I think that would provide huge pressure for some of these very substan- substantive courses to rapidly raise their game. Yeah, the neutrality aspect of that really appeals to me because it does just completely get rid of this question of, you know, whether you culturally or, or through state action prioritize going to uni or doing an apprenticeship and this is a kind of constant political bugbear of mine is that on the one hand you know you've got governments boasting about increasing funding for x in universities and encouraging x number of people to go into universities on the other hand they're talking about how great it is that they've spent x amount of money on boosting apprenticeships and things like this and you know they're they're trying to argue in a way that both are better than the other so <laughs> when they're talking about universities they're saying oh, university is fantastic and we're, we're prioritizing university and everyone should go and when they talk about apprenticeships well apprenticeships are fantastic and everyone should do those it's, you can't really have both if you can't really boost both and say that both are the, the best option there and the best response as you say is just to not address that question at all because there's absolutely no business of the state getting involved in which is better whether you do an apprenticeship or you go to university you do something entirely different and I'm just reminded of my my friend I, I went to secondary school with probably my, my best mate and he did an apprenticeship in London he, he didn't uh, go on to study at university and I remember coming home from my first year of undergrad and him having a very nice Mercedes and me having <laughs> not not a nice Mercedes no Mercedes at all for me it was very very sad times for me so I think that right now the balance is still wrongly too much in favor of universities in terms of the cultural prioritization and actually moving to a more neutral system will probably end up i think with more apprenticeships and less people at uni yeah and and the other thing is let's not forget online education we could deliver education so much better and more cheaply online if you look at these the MOOCs that are going out udacity and the others so if you had the flexibility, then you could choose to get whatever aspects of university education you wanted without ever leaving your home and still carry on with a career or start an apprenticeship or whatever you wanted to do. We need to give that flexibility. Yeah, I, I find that there's there's an interesting question here about um, kind of social opportunity in society. And I've, I've always been fascinated by the, the idea of uh, meritocracy, or at least become increasingly fascinated by the concept. Because, of course, uh, Michael Young, who came up with the idea, was um, Toby Young's father now of uh, no lockdown and free speech union fame. Um, Michael Young was a, was a leftist, a laborite, who wrote this book and, and invented the word meritocracy, not as something to celebrate or something we want to achieve for society, but actually as a critique. Because what he worried about is we have a society that is stratified based upon not traditional kind of class income, aristocratic, whatever lines, but rather based upon kind of intellectual abilities. And that if you, if you make an assumption that I think there's a, a lot too, which is that people have a blessed with different natural levels of flexibility, and that has a great impact on their, their economic outcomes. If you build a society based upon um, merit or, or kind of a narrowly defined merit in terms of intellectuality and in- income that you can achieve from that, you can have a, a, a newly stratified society with a new kind of class system, which is something that I think we've done, which is we have a, a relatively met- metrocratic society. If you're smart, 
even if you go to a, a shitty school, it's not impossible to get to a university because there's so many places now. And once you're at university, you have that opportunity to flourish. Now, not, it's not precisely the same and there's, there's nuanced complexities here, but we've basically pulled out a lot of very smart working class people and pulled them into the middle class and, and upper classes. But that's not, it's not necessarily something that's going to work for everyone. Uh, you've, you've got a situation where, uh, particularly for, for kind of young working class boys, for example, who might not necessarily be intellectually inclined, but want to do something with their hands, having the same opportunity. And this is why I think you're, you're quite right, John, about the idea of um, everyone having equal access to a loan and us not, at least with state policy, prioritising university over apprenticeships or over technical training. Um, give give people that kind of same access to education based upon what they think is best. Probably then also has a lot to do with um what opportunities they're talked about at school uh, as well and, you know, what their career counselors are saying and what they're seeing around the society because the, the, the biggest poverty of them all is just the poverty of not thinking that you have an opportunity or not being aware of an opportunity that you do have. If you're a smart kid, you should be, you know, push to the stars, apply for Oxbridge. Um, if you're a kid that's good with their hands and, and not necessarily as intellectually talented or interested, um, push for that kind of technical training that, that's going to get you a probably a better high-paying job than, uh, you know, any of us in think tank lands have. I, th- I think it's worth kind of specifying the potential risk of stratification when it comes to uh, sort of proposals that we're talking about now and the idea of neutrality between universities and, and non-university outcomes and things like this. And it's not uh, an income problem, right? If you end up encouraging more apprenticeships by adopting neutrality as to what people should do and say giving people a a flat loan um, post-16 education that they can spend on university or something entirely different, that's going to be a good thing, I think, probably for for future incomes uh, of people who are less well off. And actually, I think it will reduce any sort of stratification when it comes to incomes. If anything, it'd be a massive positive for that. The concern, and I think this is legitimate to some extent, is that you're going to end up with a, a higher level of, of kind of cultural stratification. So you end up with, yes, more people from uh, less well-off, uh, predominantly working class backgrounds will end up earning more money and they'll end up having a higher standard of living. And to be honest, that's, you know, for me, that's a very good outcome I'd be very happy with. Uh, but they're not going to be uh, going to the universities that tend to give you the sort of connections to be in positions of cultural power so whether that's you know in in politics or whether that's when it comes to being as part of an arts council or or you know any number of things being a tv presenter those sort of things do tend to be not confined but but certainly more biased towards people who have been to university and especially uh, that have have kind of imbibed a certain university culture and i think that that would be more of the case if we ended up moving to neutrality or it could be at least a a certain risk yeah i i hear that risk daniel but i mean my dream is to essentially disaggregate university education that you know there used to be a college at oxford that would let any external candidate sit um for an oxford degree and i don't see why we shouldn't get back to that why you know why the best universities um the kind of the most prestigious universities the one with the most signaling um offer external degrees and you disaggregate the teaching from the examination certification function and you know the government could offer massive carrots it could go to the the russell group the top 10 universities or whatever and say look whichever you agrees to open up to external candidates we'll give you a billion a year and then if any of these recipients of these youth loans wants to go and sit an oxford degree or whatever they can do that they don't have to fork out the full cost of an an oxford education and somebody else will do the teaching for them at massively lower cost 
online. And frankly, the teaching in many cases will be better as well. Yeah, that'll kind of create the competitive pressures, which I, I think as we've moved to a kind of a mass market of higher education has, has really been often lacking. And I think there's a, there's a qual- increasingly a quality issue with higher education that, that's devalued it as much as a oversupply issue. But on that note about some creative ideas to, to spread opportunity to end COVID and build more homes, um, thank you very much for joining and listening to this episode of the Adams with Institute's Pin Factory podcast. You've been listening to me, Matthew Lesh, and I'm head of research at the ASI, as well as my co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor. And a special thank you to our, our special guest, uh, John Meyer, who's the co-founder of the Yimby Alliance and London Yimby. If you join the podcast, please do rate and review us glowingly and make sure you subscribe to hear our banter analysis again next week. Mm-hmm.